Let's turn to the Word of God. If you have a Bible with you, if you need one, there's one in the back, and we'd be happy to supply you one. If you're part of our online audience, welcome. Uh, We'd love to have you visit us in person. We're a friendly bunch, and we have coffee after the service. Um, But we'd also love to minister to you and be with you as you open God's Word. We're in 2 Corinthians. It's in the New Testament. And uh, we're in chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Our text this morning begins in verse 7 and goes through verse 12 as Paul writes to the church in Corinth and to us. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word, may he bless all who hear, believe, and obey it. Amen. Amen. I thought about bringing a big cardboard box into the pulpit as a visual aid. Uh, The sermon title, Cardboard Boxes, tells you where we're going to start with the image of a box. I don't think I need to illustrate that. Amazon, if no one else, has made the cardboard box ubiquitous. And if you see that box with the Amazon smile on it, hopefully it brightens your day. But we have boxes made of cardboard throughout our life. They're ubiquitous. They're present everywhere. Literally, it seems, in your basement, it may be a shoebox. Or maybe in your refrigerator, you have an egg carton. Cardboard box is a broad category. And actually, people in commerce think it's too broad a category to describe a container. They either want to talk about corrugated cardboard or some other product. And you know, corrugated cardboard, you can picture this yourself. If you've ever ripped a box or looked at its construction, it has three layers of paper, just paper, a top and a bottom, and what's in the middle? You've seen it, the little wavy part, which is somehow glued together and it gives it structure and strength. And there, there are some boxes that are better made than others. Sometimes your box will arrive and you wonder, who attacked this little box? Corrugated, regular paper, cardboard boxes, they're everywhere, they're disposable, they have multiple uses, we really don't count them as precious possessions, although I do save a few in my basement, you never know when you need a box. Fast food cartons, you don't keep those, you don't collect those. There's a cliche known among parents that if they buy a large and expensive toy for their child, 
who's very young, the child may in fact end up playing with the box more than the toy. It seems to me that the spiritual children in ancient Corinth, to whom Paul is writing the second or third time here, the spiritual children, the toddlers, who are prone to wander and prone to play with the wrong thing in the wrong way, Paul writes to them as they give more attention to the box than what came inside it. Even today, many Christians are more fixated on the outward persona of the preacher, whether he's hipster or old school. The ministry, does it have flash? Does it have style? Does it make me feel a certain way as a consumer of worship? Are we being spiritually childish by focusing on the box more than the treasure? Are we neglecting fidelity to the gospel itself or to our call to deny ourselves and serve others in Christ's name, even at cost to ourselves? You see, the Bible isn't given to us that we just box things up in a pretty package. We have the Bible to help us live in a real and broken world where we ourselves are like the cardboard, disposable, ordinary boxes that aren't going to last very long. And what we can do for Christ, our treasure, matters most. All these thoughts flow out of God's word today where Paul introduces this beautiful metaphor, we have this treasure in jars of clay. What are you talking about, Paul? Let's start first talking about the jars of clay, and then we'll talk about the treasure. The jars of clay. and, and I, We're familiar with cardboard boxes. Oh, yeah. I don't think there's a person in this room who doesn't know about cardboard boxes. In the ancient world, the clay jar was their cardboard box. It was their Tupperware. It was their everything. And you know how you make clay? You can take uh, real clay out of the ground and, and do real ceramics. Or you could even fashion mud into temporary containers and bricks and different things. The clay jar, which Paul talks about here, was described in the lexicon of the Greek language as unexceptional, affordable, dispensable, put to a wide variety of uses, mass-produced, throwaway containers, ordinary clay jars, cardboard boxes. And Paul uses that to describe people. Yes, we're the, we're the pinnacle of creation on the the, the, the final day of creating the universe, before God's day of rest, he made man and woman as the pinnacle of all creation. He made us in his image. We are something that even angels long to understand. We have value because we're in the image of God, but our humanness, our creatureliness is like a clay jar. 
We're easily chipped. We're easily broken. In our present condition in this fallen world, death will come. We will not live forever in this state, but we will be transformed and we will have a a glorified body and live in an eternity future. But here and now, Paul is writing to these Corinthians who are playing with the box more than the gospel, and we'll, we'll get back to that. He writes to them to remind them that people are like clay jars. And in particular, Paul, the apostle of Jesus, the great apostle Paul and his crew of ministers are like clay jars. Who is like this? Well, humanity, but Christians too. Adam, the first man, was made out of the dust of the earth. Do you remember Genesis? God took the dust of the earth and fashioned a man. How accurate is it to call a human being a jar of clay with a special treasure, the treasure of life? Job, who wrestled with physical life and affliction, as we well know, Job chapter 10, verse 9, part of his response to the Almighty was, Remember that you have made me like clay, and will you return me to the dust? Indeed, our standard graveside liturgy for Christian burial speaks of ashes to ashes, dust to dust, as we lay the mortal remains of a loved one in a coffin in the ground. We are like this. People are like this. And Christians are like this. But when we focus so much on the body, and when we focus so much on human strength and human skill and fashion and style, we tend to forget this. And we esteem the box so much that it begins to affect our worldview. That was happening in Corinth. Indeed, it's happening in the world As we read in Romans 1 about fallen man and and, uh, how we turn from the truth of our creator, Romans 1.25 says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever and ever. One of the great descriptions of human sin and depravity is when we reverse our creatureliness, when we deny that we've been made by God and we are here to serve him and look to be served, when we fail to give thanks or worship and we want to be worshipped. Hasn't that happened in our culture? Later on, I'll remind you how Paul wrote to Timothy that in the latter days, men will be lovers of self. We'll be playing with the box. The box is all important. And Paul, your box is not very pretty. Paul, your box is very weak. And it's seen a few trips across the country. Did you go with the regular carrier or expedite? No, you're in rough shape, Paul. They were holding Paul in disregard. Because in his body, he'd been beaten and he'd been scourged. And you can't really represent God and look like that. If you really had something to offer, your box would be prettier, Paul. They were exchanging the truth of God. 
and allowing it to affect their thinking. They didn't realize, as Paul Barnett says, human life is short and its form is easily defaced and its fabric destructible in a second. It is an earthen jar, a cheap clay pot. And the truth is humbling. But that's where Paul starts. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. What is the treasure? What is the treasure? Well, he says this treasure, and it points from verse 7 back to verse 6. He just talked about something, and he says, we have this treasure. What do we read in verse 6 in God's word? For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts. Okay, what's inside, Paul? Shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The treasure is the knowledge of God, a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We have light and life through Jesus. Jesus is our treasure. The gospel truth about Jesus and how that happens is our treasure. And Paul the apostle says, I'm just a clay pot, but look at my treasure. Stop playing with the box, you Corinthians. You Americans. Why is Paul bringing this up? Well, because Paul was being attacked. Yes, Paul had recently stared death in the face. We saw that back in chapter 1. It's been a few weeks. Do you know that Paul said this in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9? We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Our whole passage really is a sermon on those two verses, that testimony. Paul had faced death. Paul realized that his box couldn't endure much. It's important to find the right container for the right product. I wouldn't put, uh, uh, let's say, uh, a great fancy desktop computer, maybe one of those homemade uh, gaming computers that has air cooling fans or water cooling systems. And well, I wouldn't put that in a Hannaford paper bag. Would you? Well, maybe a cardboard box, if it was one of the good boxes, you know the difference between the cheap boxes, the glue on the bottom might give way. Paul says we're clay vessels. So how can God do anything with us? Well, it's the power of God, not the power of the pot. That's at work and on display here. And that's a key concept for Christians to grasp. God gives you the calling to be like Christ in this world. To be a Christian. And he gives you the power to do it. He's not saying, oh, you make a fine Christian. You're so powerful. You're such a lovely pot. No, he's saying, I know you're fragile. I know your heart and your mind. I know your shortcomings. But I'm going to call you to represent me and I'll give you the power to do it. 
This has given me great hope to know how to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in Afghanistan. How is one faithful to Christ in the face of a violent, evil regime? God gives the power. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that sustained Paul, who at one point was stoned to death and left for dead. God can preserve in the body believers. Our treasure is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, a relationship with Christ, hope of life eternal in Jesus Christ. And Paul brings this up because people were focusing on the messengers, on the rhetoric, on Old Testament, um, Old Covenant forms and rituals more than the gospel, more than knowing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why he's bringing this up to get their eyes off the box and back onto Jesus. Let me pause here. As you can see in my sermon outline, I want to pause and give an application here. Something that we really have to take away from this first major point about being clay pots. Do not focus or fixate on feats or fashions. Feats, not, not a wrong plural for your foot but F-E-A-T-S, great feats, deeds of strength, powerful rhetoric. Don't focus on the box, the feats or the fashions, the physical power and the supernatural gifts some may have, but keep your eye on the prize. Keep your eye on the gospel. Keep your eye on the one who is the source of power. You know, if you start paying attention to a teacher or a ministry and focus on the earthly aspects, their power will not serve you well. It's the power of God we need to turn to. We are purposeful pots. Paul would write to Timothy and instruct him about these very things. It's wonderful to see the the correspondence between an apostle and a preacher to find out uh, uh, what the one says to the other. In 2 Timothy, you see several things that he says. And it almost sounds like we need to hear this afresh in our day as general believers. What to be aware of. For instance, 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes to Timothy about the latter times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness. There's the outside of the box but denying its power. Avoid such people, Paul writes to Timothy and to us. We need to be discerning. We need to be anchored to Jesus Christ. Don't focus or fixate on the wrong thing. Let's look at the text again in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9 in particular, 7, 8, and 9. 
to see the preserving power of God as it works. The preserving power of God. We already know we're clay vessels and we need some help. Uh, Lord, you've got to put some spiritual bubble wrap around us. Uh, This world is pretty harsh and we're fragile. Well, you know what Paul says? He says it very clearly. We have this treasure in jars of clay, this situation, this tension, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The surpassing power, not just the power, the adequate power, that should hold, that should do, I think that's enough. But the surpassing power, the exceeding, the -the over-the-top power, the cup runneth over power, belongs to God. I look, this is only this uh, uh, hyper power, it's hooper balo in Greek. Uh, uh, And that hooper, meaning above and beyond, it made me think of hyper, hyper power. It's not a, a slang from childhood. It comes from the Greek. Real God power. It, it doesn't occur a lot in this form in the Bible, but you'll find it in one spot at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as he turns the page to chapter 13. Yes, they didn't have chapter numbers in the ancient letters. Let me pause. Some of you are Bible students. You ought to make this connection. What do you find in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? Talk about spiritual gifts. Supernatural gifts are included in the mix. As Paul talks about all those supernatural gifts that are given to men, those are good, proper, need to be used. Paul ends the chapter and says, I will show you still a more excellent way. A more powerful way, a surpassing way. Hooperbalo, that's the same word, the hyper powerful way. And he turns to 1 Corinthians 13, which is the love chapter. And the love chapter starts out if I can do all these things but have not love, I'm nothing. You can have a beautiful box, baby. But if you don't have the power of God, Paul points to the preserving power of God. That's the point. Paul doesn't want to say, oh, I'm a clay vessel, but I'm reinforced with steel. No, I'm still a clay pot, but God's power is present. He doesn't give me his power. He uses his power in me and through me. The power is from God. As George Guthrie says, the fragility of the human minister thus serves to keep the focus on God, the God of the gospel, not on the messenger. There's not only hyperpower, but there's hardships galore. What? The preserving power of God has the proving grounds of life. There are hardships that come to Christians. Yeah, you don't have to tell me, Pastor. We could all share, couldn't we? Maybe in the last week, in recent days. The heartache, the, the, the wonder, can I go on? Comes to all of us. The apostle shares here the first of four lists of hardships he will face. Second Corinthians, very autobiographical. This is the first list here in these verses, 8 and 9. And he's going to give another list in chapter 6. 
another list in chapter 11, and another short list in chapter 12, verse 10. The first of four lists. Why does Paul share so much about his hardships, his beatings, his shipwrecks, stoning? He's, well, I said at the start of this series of sermons, I don't think there's a human being that has physically suffered more than the Apostle Paul. Perhaps we could say his physical sufferings exceeded those of Job. It's not a contest, but it's the way God develops many times his leaders and serves his people. The list here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 contains four items. They're contrasts, they're paradoxes. They're all participles in the present tense. Why do I point that out? To remind you that it's almost time to go back to school and learn your grammar. No, they're participles in the present tense, meaning that there's an ongoing nature. Paul's not just saying, oh yeah, when I was a young believer I had that, but I've got past all that now. No, they're ongoing types of things. And you see the list here. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. This list. It's interesting, uh, rhetorically, that not yet starts in the front, in the Greek, and then you have the pairs, so that he doesn't even interrupt the pairs by the words not yet. It's a tip of the hat to the power, the sovereignty of God, the planning of God, that God has brought him to the place of affliction, of perplexity, persecution, and being struck down. God has brought him to those, but God has also seen him through those that he is not crushed, not driven to despair, not forsaken, and not destroyed. Many sermons on this passage will just spend a long time describing each of those horrible things. I didn't want to do that. I think we get the picture, especially if you've ever seen someone crush a box or just wonder, perplexed, That means to be at a loss of of understanding why something is happening. (laughs) We live in the the season of perplexity. Why why is this COVID still around? Why Why is government still doing this? Or why is that happening there? And we know God is sovereign. Lord, a hurricane now, really? We're perplexed. But our sovereign God knows all things and works all things together for the good of those he loves and for his glory. We have been pursued. Persecuted in verse 9 is like being rapidly pursued. Paul was. People used to hunt him down. Some guys would start fasting. They would neither eat nor drink until they had done harm to Paul. Paul's talking about physical, real punishments and pains and afflictions. And and people were saying, Lord, why do you do that to your apostle? He's he's one of your good buddies. He's one of your people, one of your servants. Paul's owning it all to point to the preserving power of God. Merrill Tenney, the old New Testament scholar of my dad's generation, 
summarize this list uh, to capture the rhyme and wordplay that Paul uses because he's writing it with some rhetorical flourish so that we'd understand he's not ashamed of this list. He's just holding it out, all these hardships, to show God's persevering power. Tenney's version is squeezed but not squashed, bewildered but not befuddled. That second pair is the most uh, rhyming of the two in Greek. Pursued but not abandoned, knocked down but not knocked out. These things are normal for Christians. You may not have been physically assaulted for being a Christian. But in the history of the world, it's more the norm than not. Paul owns it because in our weakness, in our being clay vessels as opposed to a steel cabinet, we, we face those things so that the power of God can be seen. The third point here I want to make is uh, about the power of God is that we're held fast by the sovereign Lord. What makes the difference in the pairing of these things when Paul can say afflicted but not crushed? Why wasn't Paul crushed? What, what's in the middle there? I agree with several scholars who believe That the pattern of Paul in other places was his pattern here, back in chapter 1, when he had received what he thought was a death sentence. That when Paul is hard-pressed, he prays, and he asks others to pray for him. I believe that when Paul was afflicted, when he was knocked down, and the verb means literally struck with a weapon and knocked to the ground. Very graphic language. I believe Paul in the prone position, probably bleeding, prayed, Lord, I'm yours. Serve your glory through my body, through my ministry. And God answered Paul's prayer. Whether Paul prayed or not, the Lord Jesus said, I'm praying for you. We have a high priest that intercedes. We have a Jesus who holds believers in his hands and says, no one can take them out of my hand. No one. Taliban, you can't touch this. Apart from my sovereign permission. Believers experience hardships and cancers and and heartaches. It's part of our calling as disciples of the crucified one. The servant is not above the master. May we all be held fast by the sovereign Lord. Let me give you an application on the second heading. It's very simple. Do not avoid the role of suffering in living for Christ. Don't try to dodge it. Own it. Don't avoid it. And when it comes to someone else, don't disdain it when they suffer. As Kent Hughes says, our utter frailty and weakness provides the ground for God's power. I call it the proving ground, the test site, where God can say, look, 
I can sustain these sheep. I can keep that clay pot intact. But even as he allows clay pots to be broken for the glory of Christ, God is at work. Suffering constitutes a moral characteristic of authentic ministry. The great James Denny said, Suffering for the Christian is not an accident. It is a divine appointment and a divine opportunity to wear out in life, in the service of Jesus, says James Denny, is to open it to the entrance of Jesus' life. To wear out in the service of Jesus. The suffering of Jesus made the gospel possible, didn't it? Jesus suffered and took the penalty for sin so that we would not take sin's penalty. The suffering of Paul, the suffering of authentic missionaries and Christian ministers, says George Guthrie, makes it possible for the gospel of Jesus to spread in the world. There is a consistency in how God operates. Christians need to own that and not avoid the role of suffering And a second application here, because it's the important one for troubled times. Be assured of the power of God's promises to preserve you. Be assured of the power of God. Have no doubt. Sing a little more often, Christ shall have dominion. The rule of Christ is active in this world. The evil one, his days are numbered. And we can read in the book of Revelation how it all ends. Be assured of the power of God to preserve you. Finally, this morning, as we rush to conclude, the the third heading here is to talk about the purposes of God. We see the treasures in the clay pot, and we see the power of God preserving Paul. But in verses 10 and 11, Paul twice uses a a purpose clause in Greek, a hina clause, uh, and it it's jumps right out, so that, you can see it in English, right? So that, it's like a giant hand pointing here, here, turn here. So that, the purpose of God in doing it this way. Let's look at verses 10 and 11 again from our text. Paul finished that list and he says, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that, there's the purpose clause, why, why is living the Christian life like dying? Why is it that way? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that, there's the second purpose clause, the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. There's exquisite parallelism. Paul says it twice for emphasis, so you don't miss God's purpose. God's purpose in having you live the Christian life this way is so that Christ is displayed, so that the death and dying of Jesus is carried and the life of Jesus is shared. What does he mean by the life of Jesus? 
so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Simply put, it's when someone looks at the Christian and and they see, like in Paul's case, affliction, perplexity, persecution, being struck down, they see that, but then they see that's not the end of them. How is he able to go on? How is she able to care about others when she's dying at a young age? How how do we bring good out of this difficulty? How do we get through? We're showing the power of Jesus to be selfless, to be servants, to be ambassadors for Christ. We're, We're constantly showing that there's something more to live for than just tomorrow, than just health or wealth. The life of Jesus, says one scholar, does not refer merely to Jesus' life and ministry, but both the life experienced by the resurrected Jesus, the living Lord, and the life offered to people by the risen Jesus through the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit. Paul was sustained. The previous chapter, even the previous paragraph, Paul's talking about this wonderful ministry. We have this treasure. We have the treasure. We have a relationship. We have God. We have the Holy Spirit. We have help. And we're displaying that. It's just that the stage looks more like trench warfare in World War I than the Garden of Eden. But if you're so focused on the packaging that you forget the purposes of God, you need to pay attention. Good old Matthew Henry said, There has to be a brokenness in the Christian life so that the resurrection light of the Lord may be able to shine out of us, to illumine others and cause them to see through the darkness the bright face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right on, Matthew Henry. Doug Kelly says, as we yield ourselves, and he's writing this 20 years ago. I got a really important point coming up, and Doug Kelly introduces it. 20 years ago, well, when was the 80s? 40 years ago, sorry. I forget. The 80s. Oh, my. Doug Kelly said, as we yield ourselves to have our selfishness broken have ourselves canceled out so that the needs of others are put first, we experience something of the cross of Jesus. When I read that, he said canceled out. Boom. 2021. Ever heard of cancel culture? Serious question. Ever heard of cancel culture? How much do I have to explain it? If you've heard of cancel culture. You see, political correctness is now in power. And if you say something the political correct people like, even you know, whether it's, it's right or wrong, powerful forces can shut you down and cancel you. Perhaps the most uh, bizarre one instance was a, a woman who put something on Twitter. I don't even remember what she put, whether it was really offensive or not. She put something on Twitter and took a plane to like Australia. And eight hours later when she landed, she found out she'd been fired and renounced by her employer. Because cancel culture took the tweet, made it go large, it went uh, 
viral. People hear about it. The company has a meeting. And by the time she lands, she's disowned. She's canceled. The internet describes cancel culture as a modern form of ostracism in which someone is thrust out of social or professional circles, whether it be online or social media or in person. And the Apostle Paul is saying here, you know where I'm going. The Apostle Paul is saying here, we need to be willing to be canceled by culture for the cause of Christ. The people in Corinth were perpetrators of the cancel culture. Paul, you don't really measure up, so we're going to uh, disregard you. I don't think you can read verses 10 and 11 and see the connection to the Christian life when Paul says something like, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. We who live are being given over to death. We're facing hardships and criticisms in this broken world because we're Christians. You can't say that and be unwilling to be canceled if it comes to that. We don't want to give needless offense. We don't want to say offensive things. Uh, that aren't true, but when we say something like Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the only way to heaven, and the world tries to cancel us, or when we say there are only two genders, male and female, God has made only two genders, and a great blindness and wickedness has seized upon our world, and it's utterly confused. And that marriage is between one man and one woman, and anything else is not marriage. We will be canceled. We will be afflicted. We may be knocked down. We'll be persecuted. But God has his purposes to show his power and to hold us fast. There's one other purpose clause in the passage that we're going to end with. These were the two purpose clauses in verses 10 and 11. But the main one was back in verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that, in order that it's seen. The surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Whose power is it? A reminder, the power is not yours, it's always God's. God doesn't make us Ubermensch, powerful supermen. But God takes us as we are. He took Paul as he was. He will take you as you are and preserve you and use you for his glory. There's an Old Testament passage I have no time to tell you about, but I'll point you to it. The book of Judges, chapter 7. Gideon and his small band, they were outnumbered. 10 to 1, 100 to 1, something like that. And they conquered by taking some clay jars and some torches. They lit the torch, put it inside the jar, surrounded the enemy, broke the jars, let the torches shine forth and shouted, For the Lord and for Gideon! And the enemy was so in, in, in such cacophony, they, they, they hurt each other and they were defeated. See, the breaking of clay jars... And the shining forth of the light of God. Be that clay vessel. Be willing to be broken. 
in the hands of your God that the light may shine. Let the world see us as mere cardboard boxes while we carry our treasure to them. And may God bless his word this day and always. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of scripture. We thank you for displaying your power in the Apostle Paul and throughout the centuries in believers near and far. We thank you for sustaining Christians in these days. And should the days worsen here or elsewhere, may your preserving power to clay vessels help us to bring the treasure to the lost. We thank you, Father, for your mercy to us and your work through us. May it continue to have your blessing for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.